Welcome to another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. As a theatrical press agent for 40 years, Susan Shulman's client list is a virtual who's who of the theater world. George C. Scott, Yul Brenner, Zero Mustel, Lauren Bacall, Alec Baldwin, Mary Martin, Jessica Lang, Catherine Hepburn, Diana Ross, Glenn Close. Good Lord, the list is endless. Susan's theatrical projects include Applause, Death of a Salesman, Requiem for a Heavyweight, A Streetcar Named Desire, Bob Fosse's Dancing. She's handled publicity for the national tours of State Fair, Porgy and Bess, Man of La Mancha, as well as Dance Theater of Harlem, the Joffrey Ballet, the Manhattan Theater Club, the Phoenix Theater. Susan chronicled her career in her book, Backstage Pass to Broadway, True Tales from a Theater Press Agent. Edition 1 was published in 2013, and now comes the more recently revised, expanded edition, Backstage Pass to Broadway, More True Tales. Let's hear the tale of Susan Shulman. So welcome, and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sandy. I'm very excited to be here. All right. Were you a Broadway baby? Kind of was. My parents loved the theater. And when I was five, they took me to my first show, which was Flahooly. And f- yes, it was, <laughs> it, your, your expression show, says it all. It was a big flop. But what it was known for at the time was that it had life-size Bill Baird marionettes, and it was also Barbara Cook's Broadway debut. Oh, and I love Barbara Cook. Absolutely. Do you remember what year that was? Although you're going to give your age a, if you don't I mind. I think it was 1950 or 51. Okay. So I was a little yeah, kid. Yeah. And my mm-hmm. parents thought, ooh, puppets. And you could go, you could bring the kids backstage to meet the puppets Oh, afterwards. boy, had those days changed. So, yes. So that was my intro. Yep. And then a few years later, I got to see Peter Pan with Mary Martin. Oh, and, my goodness. And I was hooked. Did you want to be in plays? Not quite then. I'm mm-hmm. still, you know. I'm no, as I got older, right? Yes. Think. I mean, when I was in high school, I did plays. When I was in college, I did shows. Mm-hmm. I, did, I did community theater. I did summer stock. I did things like that. But I kind of knew that while I, you know, I had, as my mother used to say, a nice little voice. <laughs> um, I really didn't have the talent and also the toughness to be an actor. Oh, that's the, the, the those, right combination. That's pretty yeah. important. And, and I think I instinctively knew that. But what I didn't know was... How it was possible. I mean, I just couldn't think of any way that I could be in the theater. And I didn't know anybody. We didn't have any connections. I didn't know anybody. I just knew that I loved it. And so I, that you would be in the audience. You knew that that I would be. I just loved it. And mm-hmm. I wanted to, I mean, I loved performing. I loved being, being in shows. And mm-hmm. I used to stage manage and do everything like everybody does. But I was bright and I went to college. And I think I always had the press agent gene because whenever there was a show we were doing, I was kind of the one that would go out and beat the bushes. The big promoter. I would go out and say, let's do a stunt. I I remember I did community theater up in Westchester one summer. And I said, let's get everybody and we'll go to the train station. And as people get off the train, we'll sing a song and we'll get To titillate them. And we'll we'll, like Mm -hmm. sell tickets. Yeah. And so I always had that gene. Mm -hmm. And so when I got out of college... What did you major in? I majored in English and theater. Okay. I went to NYU. Uh, So I could write, and I loved the theater, and I knew what's called the back of the book in the th- in playbills. In the back of the book, there's all the credits. Who, who, built, who built the costumes, who built the sets, who the couple so of the, And the bios of, about, of the actors as well as uh, the, the bios crew, were there, the cast but, and crew. But in the back was the people that sort of made it happen. And I was very interested in that. I, I So I knew the names of the press agents and oh, I knew I see. the names mm. of the stage managers. I just, I was interested in that for some reason. And so when I got out of college, my first job was at Lincoln Center, Inc., which was the parent organization for Lincoln Center, the corporate entity that oversaw all the different constituents. 
constituents. And I was there a year and a half, and I was a lackey. I mean, I had a, you know, I couldn't even type or anything. I was useless. I was educated, but useless. You got coffee. Yeah, I was very <laughs> useless. But I I was smart. You know, I was— You I was, absorbed, huh? And I, and I worked for a wonderful man who taught me, and it was a wonderful first book, a boss named Jack Frizzell, who was wonderful to me. And I— so I so they liked me and they and they thought I you know I did good, and after a year and a half, Lincoln Center had a cutback. I was you, you know, were axed. I was yeah. like last went in, first went out. Gotcha. And but they felt guilty because I was the first one that they had to cut, and so they helped me. And I wound up working for a press agent who handled shows at the what was then the New York State Theater, and they did musicals in those days. And there was a press agent named Frank Goodman who handled that, and so they helped me get a job there. And so I started to work for th- for Broadway press agents. And I learned my craft and eventually got into the union and became a very good associate for a top theater press agent and then eventually opened my own office. So that was a very much of a natural act for you. It was totally. And, and it was interesting because when I started out, I didn't really know what a press agent was. I mean, I didn't know it was a job. Right. I was going to actually ask you about yeah. that. You know how names are sort of thrown around mm-hmm. and titles and everybody assumes that they know what it means. But nobody knows what a press agent does. So define it. Well, to me, it's creating the right expectations for a show. So, in other words, if you're handling an Ibsen play, you don't want to say it's a knee-slapping laugh right, riot, right, you know? Right. Or if you're handling a comedy, you don't want to present it as high drama. Right. It's a comedy, mm-hmm. you know? It's mm-hmm. fun. So, it, it, it's more than that, but it's really creating the right expectations. And that's both for the audience and for the critics. I'll give you an example. Sure. Sure. Uh, I handled a show called Bob Fosse's Dancing, which, which you, I which saw, you mentioned, mm-hmm, which was mm-hmm. wonderful. Yep. And it was a bunch of wonderful dance numbers, as Fosse said he wanted to put on the stage before he got too old. And this was in 1970, I'm not sure what. But okay, anyway. a long time ago. A long time ago. I'm a very old person. <laughs> but you look good. <laughs> Thank you. I'm hanging in there. And so do you. And so when the show opened in Boston, Fosse always took his shows to Boston before they came into New York. We thought we'd made it very clear that this was a, a review. It was a bunch of dance numbers. There was no thread. There was no story. There was no right. There was no, no theme. Uh, there was wasn't a book musical. Mm-hmm. And up until then, he had only done book musicals like Sweet Charity and Chicago. Chicago. And mm-hmm. so there was always that's that's what the audience was expecting. Even though we thought we were making it very clear that that's not what it was. And and it was wonderful. I, if, I'm sure you agree. It was really spectacular. And when it opened in Boston, the critics didn't like it. And the reason they didn't like it was because they all said, oh, there's no book, there's no story, there's no thread, there's no storyline. Well, there wasn't supposed to be. But somehow we hadn't created the right expectation. Uh-huh. And so they weren't happy. They, they were expecting apples and they got oranges, you know. And Who so wasn't happy? The audiences and the critics. And Bob Fosse? Well, Fosse was... Did was, he feel you dropped the ball? No, he felt that we just... We just hadn't gotten it right. Missed the mark. We just missed the mark a little mm-hmm. bit. But he wasn't like that. He wasn't like vindictive. He or, wasn't. Yeah, he wasn't yeah. pointing fingers. Yeah. His attitude was, "It can be better. Whatever mm-hmm. it is, it can be better." Mm-hmm. He never stopped rehearsing. He never stopped working on things. Long after shows opened, he would, you know, have, tweak. He would kill those dancers rehearsing. Them. Yeah. <laughs> he was a real taskmaster uh-huh. and wonderful, and the most charismatic man alive. And so before it came into New York, and it was. I would say 95% the same show. It wasn't changed. It wasn't revamped. I mean, he tweaked it, but it wasn't changed per se. Um, nobody but Fosse would know what was changed. And it came into New York. And before he, it came into New York, as most shows, 
most big shows do. There's a what's called the pre-opening Sunday reader in the New York Times, which is a feature in the Sunday Times Arts and Leisure section. Explaining all about the show? Well, it's it maybe it's an interview with the star, it's an interview with the creator. In this case, obviously it was Fosse. Okay. And in that interview, he talked, and we talked about this before he did the interview. I said, you have to talk about how there's no theme, there's no thread, there's no storyline. And he did the interview, and he talked about how it was a vaudeville. It was a bunch of dance numbers Mm -hmm. with no theme, no thread, no story, no book. And, of course, not only do audience, potential audience goers read the Sunday Times Arts and Leisure section, but so do critics. Mm -hmm. And... And all our materials, of course, stressed it too. But we had done that in Boston and we didn't do it right. Yeah, it didn't work out. But this time we got it right. And this time the show opened. Remember, 95% the same show as had opened in Boston to terrible reviews. It opened in New York and the critics raved about it and said, oh, my God, there's no book. There's no thread. There's no storyline. You're just going to sit back. They got it right. Yes. Mm -hmm. We got it right and they got it. And Mm -hmm. that was a perfect example of creating the right expectation. I'm curious, who hires you? Producers, usually. Well, it depends. I I shouldn't say that overall. Generally, it is the producer who hires the press agent, as they hire all the staff. Now, in some cases, I handle an individual actor um, who's in a show, where I'm not handling the show itself. I'm handling maybe the star of a show or the second lead in a show, in a Broadway show. And in that case, I'm I'm hired by the actor. Is that common? Yes. And does that happen when the actor or actress is super huge? It's it varies. Sometimes it's the the kind of people that I love to work with are the people that are on the cusp of stardom. Like back in the day. Well, like who? not even back in the day. Um, I worked with Karen Ziemba, and Karen Ziemba had done a million Broadway shows. She mm-hmm. had been the replacement. She'd been the go-to girl if you needed someone who could sing and dance and act really, 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 really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. And then along came Contact, which was created for her by Susan Stroman. And right, right. And I'm remembering yes, that were, I saw there this. There were three different acts. Was that at Lincoln Center yes, also? Yes, I right. did see it. Right. And okay. It was one with the girl in the yellow dress. Yes, yes, and yes. And Karen was the second one. Was the second one, and it was a story about a wife who's kind of beaten down by her husband. And then the third one was a was a little short piece about just girl in a swing. I and, was just going to say that. I'm right. so glad. It I was a sort of that. sex yes. sex yeah. romp yeah. on yeah. a yeah. swing. Yeah. Yes, yeah. very sexy. And somebody, I don't know whether it was her agent or her friends or whatever, said to Karen, you know, you might think about having a personal press agent for for contact because this is kind of a biggie for you. What's the difference between you and a regular agent then? A press agent for the show, it's just that the focus is slightly different. But we're all working towards the same goals. I mean, Mm -hmm. I would never, if if I'm handling an individual, I'd never do anything, for instance, that would undermine a show ever. Of course. I don't have that gene. Mm -hmm. But my focus would be on that particular actor and helping them in the context of the show. And in this case, it was trying to remind people how wonderful Karen was. They already knew in the industry. But suddenly, we wanted her to be seen as somebody other than the replacement girl. So we did things like we had designers come in and dress her for special occasions, which at the time wasn't so common. Now it is. But we we took her to, to designer showrooms and said, would you like to dress her for the opening night or for an awards event or whatever? And so suddenly, Karen was showing up in these kind of spectacular star-like outfits where maybe in the past she hadn't because she didn't have the money or she didn't have the connections or whatever. So it was little things that... And being noticed in a different way. And being perceived Mm -hmm. in a different Mm -hmm. way. And, you Mm -hmm. know, later, to everyone's joy, she won the Tony. 
And people would say to me, oh, you're responsible for, for Karen winning the Tony. And I said, I am not for one second responsible for Karen winning the Tony. Karen is responsible. Of Karen. course. It's Karen's talent and, and yes, everything yeah. about you her. You just moved it along. All I did was perhaps change the way people thought about her mm-hmm. a little bit. And in that way, I think maybe I did make a contribution to her career. Is it fairly evenly divided that your work is shows versus individual actors it and It varies actresses? from season to season. Sometimes it's a cabaret performer I work with, or sometimes I handle special events. Shows come and go. You don't know what's coming down the pike. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes I'll be hired for something and then the money will fall out or they won't have pulled it all together in time and it'll get canceled or postponed. There's a lot of variables that I have no control over in the theater. What's it like to be working on shows simultaneously? Is that like having a bunch of children and and, um, not favoring one over Mm -hmm. the other, but favoring one over the other? Well, no, you can't. That's the Uh, problem. Obviously can't, just like parents. But it's kind of, I have a wonderful little doll that I that I once bought in Mexico. It's a little paper mache doll and it's a juggler. And I always say being a press agent is keeping all the balls in the air because you're never just working on one thing. You've always got three or four or five or however many projects if you're lucky enough to have going. And you can't screw it up. You know, you can't not have somebody in the right place at the right time or prepared for whatever it is that they have to do. As a theatrical press agent, do you have to hustle? Sure. As opposed to people coming to you? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I tell you, I'm... And even today? Even Well, I was going to say, at this point in my career, I'm kind of a known commodity. Duh, yeah. And so, but it doesn't mean you have you don't have to hustle or put it out there. But but most of the things that I work on now come to me. I'm lucky in that way because I have sort of paid my dues and people do know who I am. But on this, by, by the same token, you know, I've had... I've had people say to me, oh, we want somebody young and perky. I was just going to ask you... And, it, and it, you say, well, how about somebody really experienced and perky. Yeah. <laughs> how about that? Exactly. I, I, I sure. wondered if how much that might work sure. against you. There's certainly ageism in every field, and there certainly is in the theater, too. What about sexism? Sure. Interesting. Are you an anomaly because you're female? No, not at all as a press agent. Okay. Interestingly. And theater press agents were one of the fields where women were prominent at one point. All the big. At, there was one point when I was sort of coming up where, except for one big office, the... Most of the other prominent theater press agents were women at that time. So that was not the issue. There's other issues in the theater. Which like? Been, well, like any any industry, there's tons, you know, there's mm-hmm. plenty of sexism and there's plenty of discrimination. And there's, you know, I think it's being addressed. Interestingly, there was supposed to be a big New York Times article about the Me Too in terms of the theater. And we were all waiting with bated breath because like every every one of a certain age, we've all had our Me Too experiences. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can talk about it, sometimes you can't. Uh, in fact, I talk about one of them in my book. But the New York Times article never ran. Because? We don't know. It's a mystery. And nobody knows. Somebody squashed it? Somebody squashed it because other, other uh, major papers, the Wall Street Journal had one. There's a big piece in the American Theater Magazine that just came out, which is, again, dealing with specific regional theaters and the issues they've had. Um, but you know, there's, there's a, there's a sort of, well, why didn't they say anything, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, attitude. And I want to smack people when they say that, because when I was coming up, who would you have reported it to? Yeah, really? The the story that I tell in the book is about Zero Mustel. Okay. And Zero Mustel was wonderful on stage and not so much off stage. Diva-ish? Well, very much a diva, but also... 
He knew his power and he could do anything he wanted and there was nobody to stop him. So if he felt like telling stories instead of rehearsing, that's what he would do. For instance, he was famous in Fiddler on the Roof for not playing the script, for making Oh, okay. And, uh, improvising. And, uh, yes, improvising, to say the least. And I mean, he was famous during Funny Thing Happened on the Way from happened on the way to the forum, there, there was uh, notorious stories about how he would turn up stage, which is away from the audience, and expose himself to the female dancers. During a performance? Just for the hell of it. Oh, yeah. God. And, you know, I mean, he did this evidently quite a lot, so it wasn't a secret. And so he he was, you know, he did what he wanted. and But he was golden on the stage, and he was, you know, everyone loved him, and he was wonderful. And my experience was uh, late in his career when he did a, a play called The Merchant, which is uh, sadly the play that he died during, which is not something you want to have happen. I did. <laughs> as, as anyone connected with it, we still have scars. <laughs> um, but before he died, it was a production where if it could go wrong, it did go wrong. So it, so it was, was doomed. It was doomed. Everything, by the time he died, I, in my head, I kind of thought, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that figures in. But anyway, before the show went out of town, it it. it went to Philadelphia before it was uh, and was supposed to go to Washington before it came to New York. I had to set up a photo session for him for a cover shoot for what was Q Magazine, which ultimately oh, sure. became New York. Let me just interrupt you. Were, yes. Was he your client or was the show no, your the client? No, the show. Okay. I was able okay. to, to so work on the show. Set, uh, yeah. uh-huh. It was produced by the Schuberts. Okay. And it was uh, written by Arnold Wesker, who was a very famous English playwright, and it was directed by John Dexter, who was a kind of um, very notoriously mean-spirited British director. Oh, so how lovely. It, had, it had all sorts of little prickly things going. Duh. Yes. So so anyway, so I had to set up this photo shoot for, for Z, as he was called, uh, for Q Magazine. And at the end of the photo shoot, and he was charming and adorable and making faces and cute as a button. And after the shoot was over, uh, somebody said, oh, let's take a picture of all the people that made this happen. And so it was his dresser and me and some lighting people. There were f- five or six of us. And so we got, he was seated on a stool and we gathered around him seated at the stool and I was and I knelt down next to him this this photo was in the book by the way just because I had it and at the last second before the camera clicked for no reason he reached down and grabbed my boob and I mean I was a young g- girl I mean I was probably in my late 20s mm-hmm. but I I, I was horrified, you know. I mean, Isn't that hilarious? Yeah, what, he did? what a so knee slap. Funny. Yeah, and you know, your your instinct is to slug him or to knock him off his stool or you know or or, or say, but you can't. Right. And at that split second, I pushed his hand away. I was so flummoxed. Yeah, I pushed yeah. his hand away, and I have this kind of sickly grin on my face. And at that moment, the photographer took the picture. And I actually had no intention of ever telling this story because nobody cared. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, n- I don't think I ever told my boss at the time, who was a very big press agent. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly didn't tell the producers because they wouldn't have cared. And what would have happened? Yeah. I, mean, I would have been fired. Sure. I would, they, they, they weren't going to fire Zero Mustel, yeah. you know. And and it was – was my life harmed? Was I – no, of course not. But it was totally inappropriate and, and he, you know, it was kind of a pig. Because I had this picture, somebody said to me, oh, you, you, you really should include that story. And I said, well, but the interesting thing was when I was writing the book, that actually was the first chapter that I wrote. And I, I had actually had it published in a magazine at the time. And, and it was – but before it was published, I sent it to the man that I had worked for, the, this press agent, who I was still friendly with and who is still alive and is a very distinguished press agent, very well respected and to me as well. 
And I sent him the chapter and I said, I, I want to make sure it's right. everything's right. And it wasn't just about this. It was about the whole experience of handling this this doomed show mm-hmm. and what happened and that in the course of it, the star died. Right, so it was, right. it was about the whole production. Right. But this was part of the story. So I sent it to him and I said, can you, is there anything that's wrong or can you, you know, tell me anything else you remember because I want it to be right. I also sent it to other people in the production. And he he emailed me back and he said, uh, no, it's it's good. And he said, but don't you think he was just funning? <laughs> now, this yeah. was in 2013. Huh. So this is the person I would have gone to mm. and said, gee, this disgusting actor just did this. Mm-hmm. Who would you have gone? So when people say, well, why didn't you report it or why didn't you say that? You know, I want to say you don't you don't know what it was like. For sure. And that truly nobody cared. And it's not about you. It's a totally. Yeah. And, and yeah. also... Was my life ruined? Was my career ruined? No. Mm-hmm. Had I had I made a fuss of, of it, who do you think would have been fired? Me. When you pushed his hand away, he didn't. He didn't react it, at all. I'm sure. I'm sure this was the sort of thing he did all the time. Yeah, right. Because, because it was funny. Yeah, it yeah, was hilarious. Funny. Yeah. Talk to me about what it was like to go from working for somebody to feeling comfortable to starting your own agency. Wow. Well. I think it was gradual. Uh-huh. I think I think I had gotten a lot of positive feedback. I was actually working for this press agent I was talking about, uh, whose name was Merle Dubusky, uh, and he's still around, by the way. And I think that a lot of people sort of saw that, thought I was capable and thought I could do it, including the Schuberts. And the Schuberts actually came to me and said, you know, why are you not out on your own? And I thought, oh. And they said, well, we'll give you a show. And so I thought, oh, that's that's kind of the good housekeeping seal of approval. Sure. And eventually... Because I, this never entered your mind. Oh, it, yes, it had entered my mind, sure. Okay. Because um, you really, you could be an associate or you could be a senior. Mm-hmm. In my, I'm, I'm part of a union called ATPAM, Association of Theatrical Press Agents and Managers. Mm-hmm. And I was a really good associate. And mm-hmm. I was associate on a lot of big shows and for a lot of big press agents. And, you know, there is a point where you say do I want to keep doing this, which I was quite happy to do. I was very good at it. Sure. Or is it my time? And And how old were you when you thought it was your time? Mid-30s. Okay. Mm -hmm. Maybe Mm -hmm. late 30s, something like that. I can't remember. You had a lot of years under your belt. Yes. I'd been doing it for a long time. Mm -hmm. And in the middle of, I had worked for a lot of press agents and learned my trade and, you know, grown up in the business and all. And then in the middle of it, there was in the in the sort of late 70s, the theater was going through a really tough time with no money and shows not getting on. And, right. And there was just a lot. It was just a really tough time. And out of nowhere, CBS television called me up, the head of press information it was called, and said, uh, we have a reorganization in, in mind and there's one piece that's missing in the in the plan. And I've heard about you and I think you might be the missing link. Would you come and see me? Well, it was like, uh, it was out of the blue. Yeah. It was yeah. one of those things that you, it's like a fantasy. Yeah. You know, it was yeah. like a movie. Mm-hmm. So I went to see him and I thought, and, and they offered me this job. They created a job for me at CBS, which was then the Tiffany Network. And it was very much the place to be. Not so much now, but then. It Whatever. Was. Yeah. This is the mid 80s. The mid 80s. I'm sorry. And so they wanted you to do this for their shows. So uh, they, they created a position to handle the publicity for all the miniseries. Ah, and it uh-huh. was interesting because they they understood that I could do projects with a beginning, middle, and an end, I like a show. Yes. Mm-hmm. And they understood that I could look at the big picture and see what was promotable and how to promote it and what. And so I thought, well, this is just a sign. You know, I have to do this. And so I closed up my office. I turned down accounts. And I went to CBS. 
and I hated it. Huh. <laughs> huh. I hated it. And I wound up spending six years in television, first at CBS, not for too long because I did hate it so much. And then at USA Network, where I worked, for, brought the network from four hours of original programming a week to 24 hours of original programming Whoa. at A&E mm-hmm. for another mm-hmm. two years. And mm-hmm. so I spent six years in television land. Didn't have a very good time, very corporate kind of jobs, but uh, learned a lot, learned a lot about marketing and all kinds of things that the theater didn't teach me. But your heart. But was, my heart was yeah. in the theater and, uh-huh. and eventually went back to the theater. And the first day, I went back and worked as somebody associ- somebody's associate because I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. And the first day I was in this office, I had to go over to the theater and set up a TV shoot for something, a you know promotion thing. And I walked through the stage door of this. It was uh, I can just it was City of Angels. I can just re- relive the feeling. And I walked through the stage door, and I had such an overwhelming sense of being home. Oh wow! It yeah. was so clear. Mm-hmm. You know, so was, much bigger than it you. Was so clear. Mm-hmm. And I thought, who am I kidding? This is who I am. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is where I live. This mm-hmm. is where my heart is. And I worked for this press agent for a couple of months, and then I reopened my office. So what has that been like for you? Can you share some of the anecdotes, you know, in your book, funny ones? I mean, clearly, the Zero Mustel one is so obnoxious. Yes. But, and, um, and as I say, I did not scar me for life. But it, right, was, right. it was, you know, there's good stuff and there's bad stuff. I've worked with some magical people. How is it to work with women? Women? Great. Okay. Because sometimes oh, no, I've had... you worry about when that happens. And sometimes that sort of tears at my heartstrings. That yeah. That's maybe why there isn't a sisterhood. I had that experience in television where I had a woman who undermined me, mm-hmm. someone I reported to who was just, you know, publicly humiliated me. And that's one of the reasons I hated CBS so much. But I haven't actually experienced it in the theater. Experienced it in terms of your clients is what I mean. Oh, I'd no. Like actresses. Oh, or... no. And I tell you something. I think that I'm a very straightforward honorable, honest person. Mm-hmm. I'm notorious for turning people down because I can't. I think I can't deliver what they need. What they need. Mm-hmm. And beca- maybe because I think it's unreasonable or Well, you're certainly in a position to be able to do that. Yes. yes. And and I mean, I'm, I'm notorious for saying, you know, I can't deliver what it is you think you need. Right. And, you know, I'm, generally I'm right. But I also think that I attract the kind of people that have similar ethics and morals that I do. For example, Karen Ziemba mm-hmm. is a wonderful person off stage as well as on stage. I mean, she's just a genuinely good human being. Another actress that I've worked with and who has actually become one of my closest friends is, is Kathleen Chalfant, who was in Wit and Wit. Angels yes. in America, mm-hmm. and who, mm-hmm. who is an extraordinary actress mm-hmm. and is just, uh, you know, the best human being. And so I think that what you give out is what you get back. Well, what ha- have you seen that has changed from today versus back in the day. Well, Clearly, the stakes are a lot different well, now. They're a lot higher. Yes. I think it's less, in the, at least in the theater, I feel it's much less of a community. I feel Everybody's it's, out for themselves. Everybody's out for themselves. I think it's much more about money. There used to be producers that would do a play because they, they believed felt in it. it needed to be done. I mm-hmm. mean, The Merchant was, was an example of that. The Schuberts felt this was an important play, mm-hmm. that it might be the sort of snob head of the season because it was a, uh, Arnold Wesker's take on Shakespeare's The Merchant, Merchant of Venice, Venice. Mm-hmm. but told from the viewpoint of the Jewish 
Shylock. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it was it was a look at it from a different side. Mm-hmm. Same characters, same storyline, but different take. And it was very interesting. It was also very long. And by the time he died, it was kind of it, – it, it actually did go on with the understudy, which it shouldn't have, but it did go on. But it wasn't a hit and it closed quite quickly when it came to New York. But I think there were plenty of producers that did put shows on because they felt passionate about them. So they were more risk takers than now? They were risk takers and I think it was more personal. Now, you know, if if you look on a billing page, you know, there's 8,000 producers. Yeah, yeah. You just have to see that at the Tony Awards. The stage is full. That's right. But I mean, if if you look at a billing page in a playbill um, above the title, it used to be there'd be, you know, David Merrick, Alexander H. Cohn, you know, there'd be two, maybe with two or three other people at the most. Now there's easily 20 or 30 people. Well, I mean, that also speaks to the fact that it costs more than a dollar three eighty, Exactly. And even to put on a drama. Yeah. And that the stakes are really high. Yes. And it's so funny because as a Broadway lover and goer, you watch the ebb and the flow. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's 80,000 plays to choose from and then all of a sudden, you know, mm-hmm. things are not so great mm-hmm. and Broadway's hurting and yep. there might be tremendous press about something in advance and it it's mm-hmm. a bust. You yep. know, the stakes are really well, and, different. And, you know, everybody, we all sort of are beaten into the ground about it has to have a star. And and mostly it does have to have a star because mm-hmm. you need something that's going to make it stand out. And if it's a name performer, then people are more attracted. But then something like Come From Away comes along. Right. Where about you never 9/11. heard of any yes, of them. Yes. And Come and From that Away, which, by the way, I have nothing to do with except that I love it. It's fabulous. I've seen it yes. twice and I've paid Paid cash money. Don't do that. I mean, it, because because it touches something in people. It touch. It brings out you know the goodness of people and the kindness and the generosity of people, and you know everybody's kind of yearning for that. But you know what worries me when I go to the theater and I look around and I only see me there. Yep. And I have sons. Mm-hmm. I did take them to the Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. I've taken, you know, uh, to yep. certain things. And spam a lot. I thought, oh, great, all these males in the audience. But come on, mm-hmm. Susan. Jersey boys. A lot of Jersey boys. Okay. A lot of guys like Jersey boys. Right. But you can count on one hand almost. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I find that incredibly depressing because I'm old. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm and not so young either. <laughs> and, and the other part of that is... Who can afford it? That's you know, that yes. the, the other nerve of what you're charging yeah. is insane. Yeah. It, Broadway's it's very expensive. And it's fraught. It, there's good and there's also there's, stuff that By can, the like, way, I'm lucky enough that I know people and I've been around and I know a lot of, you know, fellow press agents and we all kind of accommodate each other when we can. But sometimes you have to pay. I have to pay. And it yeah. goes against the grain, but I do. And I recently bought a ticket for My Fair Lady mm-hmm. at Lincoln Center. Lincoln Center, yeah. I sat in the last row of the balcony. I paid $99, and it was magic. And I thought, you know, you can see it for $99. Not that's not not that that's chump change. It is. I understand. But it's not $250. It's right. not $500 like Hamilton or something. But it's last row of the balcony, and it was perfect. You know, I could there was nothing I didn't see and love and enjoy. Well, that's and that's also again we don't have to deify Hamilton, but that how wonderful that was. Oh, you know, magic. to yeah. do that. We're running out of time, but I want you to share some of your books anecdotes. One of the people you mentioned was Mary Martin, mm-hmm. and Mary Martin was my idol growing up. And well, Peter I was Pan. Mm-hmm. from Peter Pan when I was a kid, and then. As I got older, I was a, a stage door kid. I used to hang outside stage doors after I'd see a show. To get autographs. And actually, no, I didn't really care about the autographs. I wanted to tell them 
how much they had enhanced my life. Isn't that terrific? And yeah. people, of course, and I wasn't doing it to be manipulative. I meant it, you know, yeah. but people responded to that, obviously. And so I used to write to Mary Martin when she was in The Sound and Music, and she would answer me, and I'd write again, and she would answer me, and this went on for many, many years. And so I was just a fan. I was just some kid who wrote to her. I later found out she did this with lots of people, but I didn't know that. And many, many years later, and so I kind of got to know her. She was very kind to me, and she would send me tickets for an opening night. And she, she was just really generous. That's terrific. She was very kind to me. And I mean, I was a, just a fan. You know, I wasn't anybody. And years later, when I was doing The Merchant, The Merchant was coming to the Kennedy Center. And at this point, she hadn't been on stage for about 10 years. Her husband had passed away, and she was living in Brazil, and she was kind of out of the theater. And she came back to do a play with Anthony Quayle called Do You Turn Somersaults? And Somersaults was playing at the Kennedy Center right before the merchant was going to come to the Kennedy Center. Turns out we didn't, right. but we didn't know that at the time. And so I was going down to, the, to Washington to do some advanced publicity for the merchant. And I had told the press agent for the Kennedy Center about this lifelong fandom I mm -hmm. had with Mary mm -hmm. Martin. And he said, oh, come on this day. She and Anthony Quayle are doing a live radio broadcast from the Kennedy Center and, and then see the show that night. So I thought, great. So I go to the, this radio show. It's live. And they took questions from the audience. And somebody got up, some woman got up, and she said, well, I thought it was a jip because you didn't sing. Huh. Uh -huh. Well, you know, and so Mary gave this, what I thought was a really interesting explanation. She said, well, originally the character that she played was an old vaudevillian or something. And she sang a song. in, in the It was a play. It wasn't a musical. And she said, Mary said, the audience applauded Mary Martin. So it took them out of the of play, the, yes, and yes. it was about Mary Martin instead right. of the character. And right. So they decided that the character she was like remembering an old act she had, the vaudevillian act that she had done or something, and she said so they decided that the character she played would only sing half the song, and then be overcome with the memories and not finish the song, and I thought that was a really interesting answer, and this woman who was just you know an audience member said well I don't care I thought it was a jip. <laughs> Well, I was horrified. So the next time they took questions from the audience, I got up and I said something like, you know, on behalf of everyone here, we don't care if you read this, read the phone book. We're so thrilled to have you back. On right. Uh -huh. And sort of saved the day because it was very awkward. And at the time, Mary Martin sort of, and she was down on the stage and I was up in the seats. She sort of put her hand over her heart and sort of acknowledged to me without saying anything that she appreciated, appreciated it. Yeah. And so did Anthony Quayle. And afterwards, I got all shy and embarrassed. And the press agent for the Kennedy Center said, come over and say hello to Mary. And I said, she doesn't know who I am. I'm just some kid who used to write to her, for God's sake. And he said, come on. And he sort of dragged me over. And before I could say anything, she said, thank you so much that you really saved, you know, you saved the day. And I said, well, you won't remember me. <laughs> uh -huh. But we used to be pen pals. And my name is Susan Shulman. And she said, oh, my God, I know exactly who you are. And I said, well, I'm seeing the show tonight. And she said, well, come back afterwards and we'll talk. And so I wound up sitting in a dressing room after the show for an hour, wow. sitting there and talking mm -hmm. as if we were two equals in the theater, mm -hmm. which, two we, good which we were really not. Uh -huh. But we were, you know. And afterwards, we left the stage door together. And, of course, there were people there waiting for her autograph, looking exactly like I still felt inside. Yeah. And in retelling this, even now I get choked up because what a gift. Because how often does anybody get to, even in a very small way, repay a favor to somebody like that who was so kind to them as a kid? Isn't that wonderful? Nobody gets yes. a chance no, to you're do right. that. No, you're right. And the fact that I had this little teeny tiny opportunity to help Mary Martin, of yeah. all people, yeah. in this very small way, 
was such a gift. How lucky am I? Well, how lucky are we? (laughs) We could go on for days, but it's kind of a great way to end on such an upbeat and really touching note, which in and of itself speaks volumes. That's why you're such a success. Oh, thank you. Join us for another edition of Conversations with Creative Women. I'm Sandy Klein. (laughs) 